Welcome to In the Deep. I'm your host, Katherine Ingram. The following is an interview by Paul O'Brien with me for the Pathways radio program in Portland. It was recorded in 2010. I've just had a listen to it, and although it is now six years old, I didn't find anything that I disagreed with or wish I had said differently. Hope you enjoy. Hello, Catherine, and welcome to Pathways. Thank you, Paul. Uh, you've been involved uh, with spirituality. I mean, you've been active as a spiritual teacher for many years now. Um, why don't we start by asking you, when did your spiritual journey begin? <clears throat> My journey really began as a child. I was, um, I was brought up in a kind of Christian family, although my mother and father weren't that religious, but uh, my grandmother was around until I was seven, and she used to take me to Catholic church, and then my parents were more in a, a sort of Protestant uh, leanings. But none of it ever made sense to me, frankly. <laughs> and, um, and at the same time, I had a quite difficult childhood. So I was very concerned with these issues of justice and fairness and wanting to make sense of my world, which didn't seem to make any sense. So I began kind of a my own spiritual quest, such as it was in Podunk, Virginia, where I was living, um, uh, to try to find some way to make sense of things. And I was watching... Back in those days, there was something called the Joe Pine or Pile Show, something like that. Um, it came on very late at night, and he had all kinds of characters as his guests on. It was a late-night talk show. Um, and uh, one night, he had an atheist, uh, some sort of minister, and an agnostic on, and they had a debate. And I thought the agnostic made a lot of sense. I was about 12 years old at the time. And I thought, this, this agnostic guy, that's what I am. I'm an agnostic. <laughs> so, <clears throat> and how old were you? I was 12. Uh -huh. so, um, so this set me on this sort of path of kind of looking and trying to find other types of philosophy that might make sense to me. And by the time I was in my later teens, I had become very interested in Asian philosophy and Eastern philosophies. Um, and by the time I was, say, 22, um, I began meditation practice through a Buddhist meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein. I see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, why do you think you were so philosophically oriented? Do you have any clue? Yeah, it was due to suffering, um, as, as it often is. You know, I think a lot of people who are driven to a spiritual path are driven there, not because they're just going along in life and having a fun time, but because they're desperately trying to make sense of life. Right. And so... Uh, and I, perhaps this notion of God. Yeah. Uh, you know, just something. I mean, we're told that God loves us and that we can depend yeah. on God, but I mean, maybe it doesn't are, seem like it. People are looking for solace. They're looking for... Uh, you know, reason, they're looking for justice, they're looking for all kinds of, of things in the spiritual domain. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I found, uh, you know, this, this Asian philosophy for a long time that worked for me, but even it has fallen away. <laughs> really? Yes. Now, okay, so now you got involved with Joseph Goldstein in the Insight Meditation Society. Yeah, I helped to found the Insight Meditation Society in 1976 and in Barrie, Massachusetts, and I lived there the first year of its operation. Uh, and then I went to Asia, went overland to Asia uh, from Europe, back in the days when you could. It was quite an arduous journey, but ended up in India and then was studying Buddhism in India and Sri Lanka and Thailand and Burma. I also went to Ladakh the first year it was open and so on. Um, so it was a, a, an extraordinary education in Asian philosophy and in, in particular in Buddhism. But as I say, some years later, you know, Abby Hoffman once said, all the isms are wasms. You know, it's fascinating, though, because you came out of this, I mean, you, you got involved with Buddhist practice at the, you know, early 20s, 21, 22, and you were associated with probably the largest lay uh, meditation center in the United States, uh, the, the Insight Meditation Society at Barrie, Massachusetts, which you helped found so but now you you've moved beyond buddhism can you explain that well i would say that it's just my own personal um journey because i think <clears throat> buddhism is a context for many many people which works and which is wonderful in their life and and it's you know uh to be celebrated um you know one thing if, if, pardon my interruption but you mentioned the fact that it was suffering that basically had played a role in you becoming philosophically oriented, becoming inclined towards the big questions. What's the meaning of life and how do I make sense of life? And that's exactly what Buddhism teaches. Oh, that's it. <laughs> you know, without there's no missionaries in Buddhism. The only missionary force is suffering. Well, the first noble truth is the truth of unsatisfactoriness. Sometimes right. it's translated as suffering, which works fine. But anyway, the the more literal translation is the truth of unsatisfactoriness in this world. And Mick Jag Jagger wrote a song about that. <laughs> Yes, he did. <laughs> yeah, we all agree, actually. But um, so it very much appealed. The very first, there it is at the outset, the very first noble truth. The right. truth, I felt, wow, this is my, this is my okay, gang. Okay, so this how could you tribe. go wrong? Of course, it was a great fit for you. Yeah, it was. It was. And for a long time, it was. So it, it, it certainly, I, I bow to my teachers. I bow to the whole system and so on. But for me, eventually, um, I have been making my own experiments with truth that are not in any form or formula or tradition any longer. And I I always say, take the best and leave the rest. So, you know, I'm influenced by Sufism. I'm influenced by Advaita Vedanta. I'm influenced by Buddhism and so on, by, by love, you know, anywhere one finds it, you know. So I would say that's really my path now is... Um, you know, I, I, I love, I loved uh, Gandhi's title of his autobiography, The Story of My Experiments with Truth. And I feel that I'm making my own experiments with love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I don't mean to put you on the spot. It's just that it's a very interesting topic. Um, usually, 
well, often people get involved with Buddhism or maybe they get involved with yoga or Hinduism or different forms of Eastern religion and they and they stick with it because that's what that's what you're taught is to dig one deep hole, not a bunch of shallow ones. So the concept that somebody finds uh, limitations with the Buddhist path is fascinating and I appreciate your honesty, which has always been one of your great hallmarks. <laughs> So okay, what is the limitation? How is Buddha, how was Buddhism limiting you before you broadened? <laughs> I I can't seem to change this subject, can I? I'm trying. <laughs> um, no, it's a great topic. Yeah. Um, well, um, first of all, I don't adhere to any beliefs, or they don't adhere to me. Let's say it that way. Right. I would like to have some beliefs that gave me a lot of comfort, but I don't. They can't stick on me. I just they don't. But Buddhism doesn't demand beliefs. Well, it doesn't demand them, but they're they're embedded in there. And um, also, I became weary of practice and of having my mind have a task. So, in the meditation practice, in the, the goal orientation, the goal oriented practice was one element. But even in the specifics of sitting down and having your mind have a specific mental task of watching anything, became wearying to my mind. I'm not saying too much it, work. Too much work. My mind's much <laughs> wants to just float. And so, my recommendation and my my own journey now is much more about a kind of relaxed awareness that is just flowing, is just simply being, is not necessarily parsing. It's true that people become very attached to practice, and people can become very fanatic about it, whether it's, you know, or anything really, whether it's playing golf or meditating. Um, that's fascinating. Uh, I want to, so it's ironic that what I'm hearing from you reminds me quite a bit of what Krishnamurti wrote and taught. And here, and I've come to realize that you actually interviewed Krishnamurti. Yes. Has he been a big influence on you? Um, and why don't you share with our listeners what he was all about? Well, he, of course, in his time, he was quite the, you know, the anti-establishment kind of rebel teacher. Um, he walked away from a world organization and was considered the world teacher for the theosophist. He he walked away from a huge like the reincarnation of Jesus. Yeah, I mean he was yeah. he was there all and everything in those days, and um, and he walked away and and has and you know he died in the what eighties, um, uh, but he um, represented a much more direct. A direct experience, which is what I'm also talking about here, with your own life, with your own reality, with 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 your. Uh, yeah, I suppose the more that you become, the more that you learn to trust yourself, which is one of the tenets of Buddhism that I always liked. Yes, was this idea that don't believe what I'm telling you. Right. You know, try it, see yes. if it works. Yes. But the more you trust yourself, the less you need somebody to tell you to trust yourself. Sure. Yeah. 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 So, how does you 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 have this? Uh, there's there are some things that you teach. We won't call them beliefs, but I mean, there's some techniques to recognizing what's going on, right? I mean, what do you teach people? <laughs> what is the Dharma dialogues? Let's go over that. Well, what what I do in Dharma dialogues is I create a forum or a context, which 
induces, as soon as you come in there into that room, almost everyone starts to feel a certain entrainment of quiet and of relaxation. Because, I mean, even though if we put a microphone on people's minds, <laughs> it would probably be pretty loud. But um, many, many people have reported over the many years that as they come more regularly, that as soon as you come into the room, there's a kind of entrainment on a certain frequency of just simplicity of being, letting thoughts fly by without much giving them interest. And because after all, first of all, they do all dissolve on their own. You don't actually have to let them go. They, you can't make them stay. And secondly, almost all of them are spam. Almost all of your thoughts are completely useless. Isn't that amazing? I mean, and, you know, maybe that's not true for every single person, but it's true for almost everyone I've ever talked with. You know, I think it's ironic that we even refer to them as my thoughts. Yeah, exactly. Considering when I try not to have any, they come anyway. Well, yeah. I mean, and in fact, I, I often say, just as you're not growing your hair, you're not thinking your thoughts. They're just occurring due to conditions. And so people get all caught up in their thoughts and trying to manipulate their thoughts and trying to make their thoughts be nicer or have no thought. And all of this is a fool's errand. Um, my recommendation is to let them let them fly by. But as my teacher used to say, don't give them landing space. Don't give them landing clearance. Um, and that means don't become very interested in all of this useless and perhaps troubling thought. And rather, you then start to become more and more steeped in very strong present awareness. Mm -hmm. Even though thought goes by and functional thought is noticed when it's needed, um, you're not trying to create some... How do you know you're in present awareness? What are some of the characteristics of this? Well, I wrote a book, actually, about the very That's qualities right. of, of living in awakened awareness, I call it. And some of those qualities that just naturally arise are um, delight and wonder and embodiment. You actually know that you're a human animal. Um, discernment, your, your, your clarity is strong in terms of your, your mental agility. You uh, have a relationship to genuineness. You feel more comfortable being genuine than you do being manipulative or phony or, you know, strategizing or trying. And how did you come up with these seven qualities? Actually, that's the subtitle of the book, The Seven Qualities of Awakened Awareness. Yeah. How did you develop those? Were those out of a Buddhist system or did this based no, on your own observation? I, I actually had a dream. I had a dream about them. I was in the dream, I was talking to someone, and I was telling them um, what I had observed in retreats, and mm -hmm. that there were certain qualities that I had noticed in the retreats that I've led over because the years. Because people would talk, get to talk with you during the retreat. Yes, yeah. well, we would have the Dharma Dialogue sessions once or twice a day right. in the silent retreat. But otherwise, I would, I would, you know, I observed these characteristics, these qualities, just emerging naturally when people would just have a chance to relax. That's all we were doing at our retreats. We were just wandering around in beingness, sitting together for a little bit during the day and uh, eating together in silence and so on, and having the two sessions of Dharma Dialogues. And what would happen would be this almost miraculous occurrence of these qualities 
And in the dream, I was describing them to someone, and I happened to wake up in the middle of that night, and I wrote them down. And the next morning, I got up and I looked at it, and I thought, that's a book. <laughs> wow. So they were good even the next morning. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> now, there's one of them that's the trickiest for you to remember. Silence. Ah, and I, why would that be the hardest? Well, I, I, I um, sometimes don't remember it because it's an odd quality to speak about or to even describe. I mean, it's not exactly even a quality, you know, so it's a little different than the rest of the qualities. I forgot also to mention before tenderness, which is a very important one. But the quality of silence, in a sense, is the background or, the, or the, what informs all the rest of them. Mm-hmm. And when I say silence, of course, I don't mean that you don't talk or laugh or shout. I mean a silence of the heart. Mm-hmm. A silence of the heart. Yes. So that's where you're not perturbed or disturbed? Even disturbance could occur, but that there's a general confidence or a general quiet in the beingness and the perturbances are happening more on the surface of your being, like as if you understood yourself as an ocean. And in the depths of the ocean, it's very still and calm always. But sometimes a storm is happening on the surface. Right. And that's how you begin to sense your own self, that you have these depths of beingness that are just fine. In fact, speaking of beingness, you, you use the term the ecstasy of beingness to describe the feeling that happens when you're passionately present. Yes. I think that's a beautiful phrase. <laughs> Another thing that you have a lot of experience with and talk about and write about, including in your novel, which I want to talk about before we finish, is loss. Yes. I mean, you went through a painful period of grief. I have been through lots of pain. I have had a lot of loss in this life. But even after you had uh, experiences of a powerful awakening. Yes. Yes. Well, I know you to be very open. Can you describe that process for us and how uh, your ability to be present helped you? Well, there. you know, when you're going through very intense grief, first of all, I always recommend let that big storm of grief be welcome to feel it, you know, cry as needed. Uh, I think we don't cry enough, actually, many of us. We hold back. We hold back tears. We hold back grief. And I think that it it twists and turns inside of us when we do. But any in any case, after a point, though, what you begin to realize is these sad thoughts, you know, in a sense, they become like Dharma bells for you to to remind you to come back to present awareness because you, after a certain point, you don't want to just keep inducing depression. You know, you don't want to keep going over and over sad material. Yeah, but you, maybe you can be grateful for a sad thought that reawakens you. Sure. Of yeah. course, and and not to be afraid of sad thoughts either, and not to think something is wrong. But, you know, there comes a point, I mean, in my own case, I've been very uh, indulgent of grief when it's there. I've let it be, and I've cried I've just just a month is ago. Is there any way we can accelerate grief? I think that uh, <laughs> that would sell really well. That would sell well. But I don't think there is. I think for each, and now some people just move through it more quickly than others. But other people, and according also, 
to the type of loss it is. Uh, I mean, I think when a parent loses a child, it's very difficult, very difficult to ever sort of be free entirely of grief. And I say you can still live in your inner freedom, although grief is there. It's okay. You know, you can have grief be part of who you are, and it's, it breaks you open into uh, tenderness. Now, this is kind of a stupid question, but <laughs> I must assume that your own experience of grief informed your, your, your novel. You've written one novel. Yes. What's the name of it? A Crack in Everything. A Crack in Everything. From Leonard Cohen's fabulous line, uh, there is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. That's how the light gets in. Well, I recently read your novel, and I, I thought, wow, this, this is a really a page-turner, <laughs> uh, uh, for one thing. And I did cry a couple times. I'll admit it. While I was reading, you're proud of it. <laughs> I'm proud of it now. But um, tell us about how the relationship between how did that book come come out of you? Because mm. um, fiction is an entirely different animal. I mean, you wrote a story with invented characters, and you you gave them personalities, which. By the way, I found incredibly congruent. I, I, I just thought it was a captivating book. In fact, I read the whole thing in one day. It was such a page turner. How did, how did you do that? And what's it about? What's it mean to you? Um, well, first of all, I loved writing fiction. I would like to do that a lot. Um, it came very easily to, to me. Um, and why I loved it is that you know how in nonfiction you have to take a you have to make a case and you have to stick by it. You have to build the case and be consistent. Right. Whereas in nonfiction In fiction. I mean I'm sorry, in fiction, you can have the various voices and various um, sides of looking at any issue be represented by different characters in the book. So you can have one character see the world one way and another character sees the world completely differently. Oh, so you don't have to have singular personality disorder. No, right, yeah. exactly. You don't, have to, you don't have to be that consistent. You can indulge your multiple personalities. That's right, exactly. Wow. I can indulge all the ways that, I, <laughs> that, I, that my mind naturally tends to see many sides of an issue. And so um, I found that very freeing. And I found, Paul, that I was able, in a sense to tell the truth more deeply and more clearly as a result of that freedom than I've ever managed to do in nonfiction, which I have written a lot. I can see that. Having read the book, the way that you, uh, the characters are complex, and they, I could see how they could represent different sides. I could identify with the characters, with many of the different characters, uh, a crack in everything. I, I really enjoyed that. Is that book available for people yeah it's on amazon it's on amazon yeah, that's yeah that's only... right because i read it on the kindle yes it's on kindle also yeah yeah it's on yeah. kindle also and um well that's that was just wonderful do you think that the process of making up a story and populating it like that is a was a spiritual process for you or had any kind of uh ramifications along those lines? I, I think that it was probably my most spiritual endeavor, actually. Um, it pulled, and I think the experience for people when they read it, is that it, it, it forces you into looking at what are the real priorities of this life, you know? Mm -hmm. what, is actually, what is love? What is true love? And what does it mean to lose someone? And what does it mean to 
have redemption. I would say that that the primary occurrence in the book, the primary theme, is the theme of redemption. I don't mean this in a liter- uh, in a religious sense. This I mean, kind of self-redemption. Yes, of a redemption of a, of a person who might have been lost th- through their own greed and and confusion, and is somehow uh, finds a rectification of his of his journey or his path. Well, I want to thank you very much for being on the show. You've been delightful. And what a pleasure to be in your presence. Oh, and yours, Paulo. And thank you for this wonderful show that you've done for so long. Oh, you're welcome. Really thank you. great. Appreciate it. This has been In the Deep. To support these podcasts, you can subscribe to this channel on iTunes or post a review there. If you'd like to know more about my work book a private session, or make a tax-deductible donation for the ongoing production of the podcasts, please visit katherineingram.com. Till next time.